Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And monthly monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, it is an honor to talk to our guest today, Sharon Delrose. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So and I love the title of the last book that you just read off. Uh, it's not <laughs> aliens, it's us. <laughs> yeah, that's Jared. He is amazing. Um, so before we started uh, recording, we were just talking about one of your books about the fairies of Ireland and the connection to extraterrestrials. Yes. I definitely want to dive into this because this is a first. It shouldn't be. They've been with us. Okay, the, the fairies of Ireland, first of all, people think of them as little people, mm-hmm. invisible little beings that play tricks on you. And, and people don't really, I mean, I'm sure some people take them seriously, but most people do not consider them to be flesh and blood entities. But they were Nordic aliens. All of the descriptions, if you read all of the ancient descriptions of them, you go as far back you know, into the Irish history, They were Nordic aliens who towered over humans, just like the Nordic aliens today. They had piercing, piercing eyes. Their hair was either, you know, some of them were blonde, white. Some of them had flaming red hair. Their skin was said to be such a pale white. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the tall whites. Yes, I am. Yes, mm-hmm. and he describes them as you know being so so pale that they look almost ghostly. Well, that's the same description given for the fairies of Ireland. They were considered to be either chalk white or snow white, and we think of that as Caucasian, but it wasn't. If you take a piece of white copy paper and you hold it up to your arm or your face and you look in a mirror, that's the difference of their color to a human Caucasian. They were so pale, they were almost ghostly. And they towered over humans. They were at least seven feet tall. Some were eight, uh, you know, seven to eight feet tall in Ireland. And they weren't even the giants. There was a race of giants that were in Ireland when they arrived. But when they came, they came down out of the heavens. And nobody knew whether they came, you know, out of heaven, out of earth, they didn't know if they were demons, they didn't know if they were fallen angels. Mm-hmm. All they knew was they came down out of heaven in a dark cloud, and that cloud darkened the sun, darkened the land for three days and three nights. And when it lifted, they were already established and fortified in Ireland. 
and they were physical flesh and blood beings. They could die, but they lived for usually, they could live up to a thousand years, just like the extraterrestrials today. When you match side by side the fairies of Ireland, which were Nordic aliens, and the Nordic aliens that people are describing today, it's the same description. But it isn't just physical. It's some of the things that they did when they were here. Now, you hear about people being abducted today, whether by the Nordics or the Greys, and one of the things that everybody tells you is at the end of the abduction, they will erase some or all of your memory of what happened with them. Right. That's one of the main things of abduction today. They were doing that. The fairies of Ireland were doing that thousands of years ago. And based on my research looking at the archaeological monuments in Ireland, you know, now if you go to some, you know, if you go read an article about them that's already out there, they're going to tell you that they arrived at around 1500 BC. But I believe they arrived 5620 BC based on archaeological dating because they were credited with all of the monuments, the New Grange and, you know, all of the monuments that are in Ireland. They were credited with them. So you have to look at the dates of those monuments in order to determine when they genuinely arrived. And their history has been altered. It has been altered by several different people for several different reasons, and that includes the timeline. Um, monks, Christian monks, when they arrived in Ireland, they were one of the people that changed the timeline. They wanted everything. It was a noble endeavor. They wanted everything to match the Bible. So they tried to plug, you know, the, there was no timeline that they could match with the Bible, so they created one. Uh -huh. And that changed the actual timeline as we have it today. You look like you want to ask me a question. No, no, go ahead. Okay. That's okay. But uh, so the monks changed. They altered, they altered the history. They altered the timeline. Another group that altered the timeline was invader, the Milesian invaders, the people who came after them, mm -hmm. the people who replaced them. Uh, they rewrote history to puff themselves up. That's what everybody does. You know, if you <laughs> go in and, you know, you puff yourself up, you want to make you, you know, you want to make yourself look like the big, you know, big man in town. They not only altered the timeline, they took the genealogies of these extraterrestrial beings their genealogies and tack them onto their own so that the people would believe that they were gods or descended from ah, the gods. Makes sense. And that's in the book. I mean, everything is sourced. The Fairies of Ireland book in paperback, it's six by nine and it's 512 pages. That is how much is in that one <laughs> single book, 512. And it's not a little, you know, mass market paperback size. It's six by nine. And everything is sourced. Um, the bibliography in the back is a book in itself, showing where every single piece of it, and, and throughout the book, if there's a quote, it'll, it'll show you, you know, who, where did that quote come from? And, you know, which Irish historian or which historian or, you know, where did it come from? And they tell you that another thing that they changed in the history is, when the Christians arrived in Ireland, nobody wanted Christianity because they were in love with, these were the good gods. They did so much for Ireland. They lifted Ireland up. They, 
saved the Irish people from a race of horrible, horrible giants who were uh, had everybody under their thumb. The giants were called Fomorians, and it was another flesh and blood race, and they were all around the world. I mean, you know, giants were worldwide at, at yeah. one point in history. And in Ireland, they were called Fomorians. And when the Tuatha de Dinan came down, the fairies of Ireland, their name, the Tuatha de Dinan, is what they're known as in Ireland. When they came down, you know, down out of the sky, they went to war against the giants to free the Irish people. And because of that, the Irish people embraced them as the good gods, the gods of light, the gods of day. And then when Christianity came, they couldn't pry the love of the people away from, you know, the Tuatha de Danann. So they took the gods, the Celtic gods, and merged them with Christian saints, giving the history of the Celtic god to a Christian saint so that the people would embrace the Christian saints instead of the Celtic gods. That's how they were able to convert uh, the people to Christianity from the pagan Celtic religion. And it's we have the proof in writing. We have historians. I mean, there are so many Irish historians that have written about this, but it was never put together in one comprehensive whole. I think there's 25 pages of uh, bibliography in tiny little print in the mm -hmm. back of the book. That's how how many sources went into bringing their history into one coherent whole. And that's why we didn't, you know, that's why you haven't really heard about it before. Because, you know, when somebody, you have to do that deep of a dive to get to the truth. If you just pick up one book and look you're not going to mm -hmm. get anything out of it right that makes they, so much sense because i mean that essentially like like that's what the christians did with a lot of different cultures was sort yeah. of adapt their gods into saints yes they did they did that yes that's and and it's and it's efficient it works because if you just try to take it away from the people they're not going to go for it so you have to figure out how to merge the old with the new and it was very effective the Romans did it when they blew through the world, and uh, they, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of love for the Romans, but when they blew through the world, they did the same thing. What can they take? They, you know, they took holidays, uh, pagan hol a lot of the pagan holidays got merged with, you know, Christian holidays and other holidays. So a lot of our holidays today, one of them, uh, Halloween is one of them. But uh, hmm. when. The Tuatha de Danann, what they did, they went after the giants. The giants took two-thirds in, ta like, basically taxes of everything you produced. Two-thirds of your corn, two-thirds of your wheat, two-thirds of your children. They took two-thirds of everything you produced. And if you did not pay, and they did this once a year, you had to meet up at this, you know, location. And if you didn't pay them, now, the scholars are at odds on exactly what happened, but at the worst, they cut your nose off. At the least, they cut it, but not cut it off. The, the scholars vary. There's two or three different versions of it. But that's when, and if you had a choice, you could either have your nose cut off 
or they would put you into slavery. That's what the giants were doing. And worldwide, the, you know, Earth could not support the giants. They couldn't feed them, they, you know, and they weren't productive themselves, so they relied on humans. You know, basically, we were feeding them, we were working on their behalf. And all around the world, the gods all around now, it's in the other books too. Uh, you know, Central America, South America, North America, you name a country. And when the gods arrive, and they're all seem to be different, but they're all related. And I show mm -hmm. that, you know, throughout the series, they, you know, they lifted us up, but they protected us from the giants. They got rid of the giants because we would be extinct if they hadn't come to earth and gone after the giants to protect us, we would be extinct. We did not have the ability to fight the giants on our own. So wow. once they got rid of the giants, they started teaching us. Mm -hmm. You know, they taught us to read and write. They built libraries. They built schools. Now, here the Druids. This is another entity that people don't understand. People think of Druids as you've got a tall, pointy hat, <clears throat> you've got a cape, and you're carrying a staff, and you're magical. You're hugging a tree, but the true, in Ireland, the true Irish Druids, they were professors. They built colleges. They would go to school to learn a variety of different things. They became historians. They became lawyers. They became judges. And the true identity of a Druid is like a PhD today. And school would be anywhere from 12 to 20 years, depending on what you were studying. And you and you were then a teacher. And that was the true identity of an Irish Druid, a PhD teacher. And they served kings, they they wrote the laws. They wrote the actual laws in Ireland. That's another thing. You can go look it up and you'll find, oh well no, people that came along a thousand years later wrote those laws. No, they were the original authors of what is known as the Brehan Laws. I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, but the Brehan Laws of Ireland, which some of which are still in use today, they were the original authors of those laws. Hmm. I didn't so know that. They, yeah, so that, that's just it. You, you have to dig. I would find a fact, and it would have a thread leading to another one, and I would look as hard as I could in every book that I could get my hands on. Okay, what is this about? What are they trying to say? And then, of course, it's, it, it branches out like a tree. You know, you, you follow one thread, and then you follow 10, and then you follow 20, and then you follow 50. And when I set out to write this book, Fairies of Ireland, I was expecting to write one book on the Fairies of Ireland. But it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And it became so massive that I divided it into nine books. And all of it is not Fairies of Ireland because they they touch India. Oh, cows, that's another one. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I think I have a theory on that why cows are sacred in India based on Irish legends. Okay. I, they, traveled to the, they traveled to India. They traveled to North America, Central America, South America. They had transcontinental ships. They were voice activated, self-propelled. They had a built-in GPS system to where you would get on one of their ships 
you would tell it where to go. I want to go to the Garden of the Hesperides, and it would take you there. That's it. You did not have to have sails. You did not have to have oars. They traveled on their own power. But here's, and it sounds like magic. So like the magic you know, carpet it, story. Yes. But here's the thing. It, it didn't just come from Ireland. Hiawatha, you know, the, the Native American Hiawatha, right. he had one of them. The Norse gods, Odin, mm-hmm. the Norse legend, they have the same exact descriptions of ships. <clears throat> and some of these ships also went under the water, like USOs today, and they went up in the air. So just so here we have past and future. The stories we're getting today from people who are describing UFOs and describing aliens. They were telling those same stories, you know, 7,000 years ago. There's no difference. There is no difference in the descriptions that we're getting then and now. And that's my, and this is, this is what gets me. People believe in UFOs. People believe in aliens. People believe in alien abduction. Mm -hmm. But people believe in the pyramids but when it comes to mythology the stories of our ancestors people have a hard time with that they don't embrace that as physical earth or i call it earth's extraterrestrial history right. they do not embrace it that way yeah they don't take it literally yes they all think it's like some kind of metaphor at least that's what we were taught in school like oh it's a metaphor for this to teach you this lesson or that lesson yes it's been turned into like a teaching parable Mm -hmm. they did it in the bible they changed the bible i've wrote written about that too they changed the bible one word at a time you know they'll they will change one word and they will take a physical piece of history and turn it into a teaching parable erasing the physical part of history that that passage was trying to talk about Uh, I've talked about that. I think it was in a different book. But so this, why it's important to me is that the ancient aliens, the ancient astronauts that came to Earth, and this is all around the world, when they left or vanished, whatever happened to them, they told us we will be back. And when we come back, it's going to be at the end of the you know end of day scenario armageddon ragnarok you know whatever name you want to call it in whatever part of the world you know we have the biblical revelation we have these end of the world predictions coupled with the return of the ancient gods all around the world well we knew the ancient gods we have you know Books and books and books and books and books about them that our ancestors wrote. Our ancestors told us everything they did. Don't you think we need to know what to expect when they come back? By knowing who they were, by knowing what they did when they were here before, I think that will better prepare us for the great return whenever it happens. Because right now people are saying, well, what are they doing up there? They're flying around. They're taking some cows. They're abducting people. But, God, we should be scared to death of them. And because that's all we know. They're a mystery, but they really aren't a mystery. If you study the stories that our ancestors told us when they lived on, they lived on Earth. They didn't just visit. They actually 
colonized the whole planet under different names. So we knew these beings. And by reacquainting ourselves to their his Earth's extraterrestrial history, then we're better prepared to know what to do when they come back. And I'm one of those people, uh, I think they call it a positivist, mm -hmm. meaning that I look at them in a, now I know there's different races and there are, and some of them are not positive, but the ones that I've studied, the Nordic aliens that I've studied, the fairies of Ireland, the Greek gods, the Scandinavian gods, the gods of the Americas, they were all friends of mankind. They came here and they helped us. And I even have a theory about now, you, you know, you will hear some ancient astronaut theorists talk about slavery. They came to Earth and they enslaved us. Then Zachariah Stitchman theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I came up with a theory, theory for that. Now, when you, we didn't, we knew nothing when they were, we were not building roads. We were not building towns. We weren't planting corn or wheat. We weren't keeping cows or sheep or anything. We were just wandering around picking berries, living in caves. And, and it sounds pretty innocent, but that's, we were not anything. We were bloody. We were horror. You know, we were vicious to one another when they arrived. They taught us everything, but humans are stubborn. We don't want to change today. We don't like change. We fight it with every fiber in our being. So for them to teach us, there was a little bit of force involved there. They were trying to teach us how to build a city, how to build a road, how to raise cattle, how to raise sheep, how to raise corn. And they, you know, they were doing it for us, but we may have considered it slavery because we didn't want to learn. Go away. We don't want to learn. Hmm. We like what we're doing. You know, we don't need your we don't need your advanced knowledge. We don't need to change. We can just keep doing what we're doing. And here's the thing to me. This is very ethical because we have uncontacted tribes today. And we are in the same boat. We look at these uncontacted tribes and the way they're living and we want to go in and change them. So how do you, how do you weigh that out? Do you just let them do what they're doing? Because that's what they want. Or do you just blow in there and say, no, you're going to learn our way. And the minute we do that, the minute we blow in there and say, no, you're going to learn our way, we're the bad guy. That's what happened with the extraterrestrials. They came, you know, we were the uncontacted tribe. They came and they changed our entire way of life. Now, if you get into the ethical part of it and you say, well, they should have left us alone. You know, they shouldn't have done it. You know, if we didn't want it, they shouldn't have. Would you, and this is not just for you, but every person listening, would you go back to the lifestyle? We were unchanged for millions of years. If you go to the Smithsonian Interactive Human Evolution Timeline, humans were unchanged for millions of years. Now, we might have gone through different, you know, Homo erectus and this and that, you know, the, the different. But as far as our lifestyle, it didn't change until they came down out of the sky. We didn't even have, we didn't have fire. We didn't have the wheel. We didn't have anything until they came down out of the sky. So if, if we had say, no, the, 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 the way they taught us bad, 
you would go back to, you go to an uncontacted tribe right now, and that's how we would all be living. Because humans weren't changing on our own, even after millions of years. So there is the ethical, would you give up your computer? Would you give up your soft bed? Would you give up your car, your air conditioning, your refrigerator, you know, your everything? Would you give it up to go back to that lifestyle? And that's the ethical issue that everybody has to weigh in their own mind when they say, well, they, you know, they forced us to learn. And today we have a farmer and, you know, he'll have a son and he'll teach his son, but the farmer knows. And then there are other farmers and there's people, there's books and there's, you know, and there's schools that child can learn from a variety of sources. And if he does something wrong, he has mentors that he can turn to to, okay, what do I do? Um, the, the cow is baby. It's not coming out right. There's a problem. And I think the cow is going to die. What do I do? What do I do? So they had to not only teach us, but they had to teach us to such a deep degree that we could teach one another so they could leave and leave us to our own, uh, leave us to our own devices. So those very first humans that they were teaching, they, they had to they had to do it right from from every you know they had to immerse and that's what people are calling slavery they taught us veterinary medicine you know you don't just put two cows together and they make babies and they make more and they make more they get sick they have trouble giving birth if you ever read james the james harriet books oh i love those books uh, you know, he was a veterinarian in Yorkshire 100 or 200 years ago, and he talked about all the things he ran into. You ran into trouble. We have stories, and this is where our ancestors would supposedly kill an animal, take the entrails out to read the entrails for some voodoo, you know, try to make a prediction or voodoo. That's what we think of it. But if you study the actual process, you realize that the origin of that was we were being taught veterinary medicine. How do you teach a doctor? How do you teach a veterinarian? You take an animal or a human and you dissect them and you look at the different organs. Here's a healthy one. You know, here's a healthy liver. Here's a, you know, rotted liver. And so when they were killing and dissecting animals they were teaching humans veterinary medicine that's another place that we get it wrong and that's what happens when you i'm one of the least known of the ancient astronaut theorists because i have not been out there giving interviews i'm not working the circuit i'm not going to all you know i'm not traveling i immerse in the research mm -hmm. you know bookworm you know, I'm into, you know, I, I spend hours and hours and hours. So name-wise, I'm one of the least known. And yet, I've broken ground on... I can see that. The, the theory about the slavery mm -hmm. makes so much sense to me. And it fills a huge gap for me, yes. too. Because, because there was always... I've always had, like, that, that, that gap. Like, oh, he said there were slaves, but... Then everybody yeah. else is saying they're they're benevolent, which I also believe. And yeah. in, in, in trying to put those two things together, 
Yeah. It's been very, you know, I haven't been able to do it until talking to There's you now. There's a disconnect. It's amazing. There's a disconnect. It's, There's it, a disconnect. And it fits perfectly. It's like a missing piece. Yes. A lot, a lot of, I found a lot of missing pieces. Now, here's another missing piece for you. Another one of my favorites. It's the last chapter in Fairies of Ireland. Mermaids. Okay. We think of them as half human, half fish. Okay. You can't believe that. Nobody's Nobody believes that there is an entity that was a half human, half fish. The true, and this comes out of deep, deep dive into Irish legends and legends around that area. Um, there are some Greek legends as well. They were scuba divers. The oldest legends did not describe them as having fish tails. The oldest legends describe them as wearing a suit that they took off and put back on. But when they were wearing this suit, they could lay on a beach that was covered with seals and blended in so perfectly that you wouldn't realize they were there because they were wearing some sort of a seal skin, just like mm -hmm. a scuba diver today will wear a solid black suit. But another thing, they could not go underwater. These mermaids and mermen could not go underwater without headgear. And this headgear, you take it off, you put it on. But this headgear allowed you to breathe underwater. And without the headgear, you were unable. Now, this is what happened. Now, these women, they were beautiful, the, the mermaid. No, they were mermen and mermaids. But they were, they were beautiful. I mean, they were just absolutely stunningly beautiful. And, of course, in human men, they wanted them. You know, I want one of those women. Right. So they figured out that when they came on shore, they would come out of the water, they would come on shore, they would take off their suits and then they would just, you know, lounge on the beach or they would dance or they would just, you know, have them so, you know, have a little gala. And a human man would go and steal one of their suits. And as soon as he did that, that woman could not join her friends to go back in the water and leave. So at that point, she's got nowhere to go. She goes home with the human. He basically forces her to become his quote-unquote wife, and they have babies together, which shows you that these they were compatible genetically with us enough to produce children. So they would actually have babies with these women after stealing their suit so that they couldn't go back in the water. Now, we have legends of um, underwater cities. You know, I know we have that today. People, today, we believe that there are cities under the ocean that uh, extraterrestrials are coming and going from these cities. Right. We have UFOs that are flying down into the ocean and out. Uh, those These legends go back thousands of years, and they are connected with the mermaids and the mermen who would come and go out of the water and take off their suits and then put them back on again. And every description given of those suits is a perfect match for a scuba diver today. So I believe that's all they were. And how they got transformed into, you know, half human, half fish we have legends out of Mesopotamia. We have legends out of the Americas. And they all support that these mermaids and mermen were nothing more than scuba divers. And once they took off their suits, they were, they looked like humans, just the way Nordic aliens look like humans to a degree. I mean, you can, you can't mm -hmm. look at a 
Nordic alien and mistake them for a human. But they are very human-like. And th so that's, that's another one of those legends that doesn't make sense until you really, really dig deep into the, and it's all sourced. As I said, when, like, if you read that chapter, every single quote and every description of what they were wearing in the headgear, it's sourced. It shows you which Irish historian, which book, uh, and it's not just Irish historians come from others, you know, other places as well. It's fully sourced with whatever ancient description, you know, was given of these beings. Um, they did have the power of invisibility. You know, so they, uh, just like they do today. Now, there's a interesting. Now, you're familiar with the Tall Whites, Charles James Hall in his Millennial Hospitality series, and he described the Tall Whites. Mm -hmm. One of the things, and he, he was uh, in the Air Force in the 1960s, and he encountered these, and for people who aren't aware, he encountered these tall white extraterrestrials, and he wrote several books describing his interactions because he had more than one. one. When he first saw them, he thought he was seeing ghosts off in the distance. And sometimes it looked like a ghostly horse levitating in the air. We have ancient legends out of Ireland and the British Isles of what they called uh, water horses. We have descriptions given thousands of years ago of something that sounds exactly like what Charles James Hall described. Oh, here's one of my favorites. The place where Charles James Hall encountered these tall whites. You know, we have a location for them. Mm -hmm. In Nordic Aliens and the Lost Kingdoms of the Americas, a uh, different book in the same series, there was a Chinese expedition back in 499 AD. They were looking for a place called Fu that they ended up calling Fuzang. I dissected that legend. Where did they land? What did they see? Um, some people believe that they landed in northern Mexico, but I believe that they landed at the petrified forest of California because what they describe is tar pits. They give a perfect description of tar pits, a lake of milk, uh, the great big trees, and you know some of the other things that they found when they landed on shore. And when you dissect every single one of those pieces, where would you find this? Where would you find this? You end up with a petrified forest. Well, to the east of the petrified forest, they encountered what they called the kingdom of white-haired women. When they described these white-haired women that they encountered, A, the location perfectly matches Charles James Hall's tall, tall whites that he encountered just in our lifetime. And this was in 499 AD that the Chinese were encountering a similar species it may, you know, to these tall whites. Wow. The amazing. Kingdom of white-haired women shared traits with the fairies of Ireland. Something, all of these ancient beings, now we get this out of India, we get this out of Ireland, now we get it out of North America. When they had children, their children grew up so fast 
that in three or four years, they were the size of what we would consider an adult. And they all told the exact same story on how quickly these children grew to that size. Because think about it, their parents were, you know, towered over us. And a lot of these children um, were hybrids because they were, they were, cohabitating sometimes with the giants that they encountered here so their children were bigger than even they were and they did it even with the wicked giants that they got rid of they also created a race of hybrids with those giants in ireland and those hybrids became the heroes of ireland and they actually helped to get rid of their own people the, you know their own giants they they used these hybrids to help you know, cleanse, and they did this all around the world. So, they, they, but, the, you know, we're getting stories from different countries that you can match with ancient history and current history. And that just, that that is just phenomenal to me. That is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you pinpoint it to the exact location of a modern-day extraterrestrial to something that they w was witnessed in 499 A.D., and several of their, um, you know, their way of life matched the fairies of Ireland, you know, some of their customs. So it's like there appears to be some sort of a connection. Wow. You know, uh, most people know about, well, I'm going to, let's talk cows. This yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be my next question. I was curious about the cows. This one, this one. You know, today we have all of it. I don't have a theory on the cow mutilations, but, you know, that has been one of the biggest things that go on with, you know, they're going around, you know, they, they, there's something going on with the extraterrestrials and the cows. I came across this one very brief, I think it was about two sentences, you know, during my research. And then I, I just went all out on that two sentences. I was like, what is this? Where... The elders of the fairies of Ireland, Manyan and MacLear was one of them. Uh, he's, he was one of the, they call him it's God of the Sea. You get these God of the Seas. All that meant was they had the ships, the transcontinental ships that, you know, went from one place to another. They traveled thousands of miles. But he and another, they traveled from Ireland to India because there was something wrong with the cows in Ireland. And we're talking thousands of years ago. They considered those cows demoniac they could not eat the flesh of those cows they could not drink the milk that was tainted in some way and so they traveled all the way to india to get healthy cows that is on the other side of the planet why not just go to europe even america the americas were even closer that they went to the opposite side of the world and it's like, why would you go that far? Were there no healthy cows anywhere in the world that you had to go that distance? So then you have, now I have not researched that in depth because of the Hindu holy books, there are dozens of them. You know, that's a whole nother, uh, <laughs> that, that would be one, one heck of a deep dive. It, it is. I've, you, I've had um, it, Michael Cremo on talking about that. Yeah, there's so many of them. But, you know, you have the Hindus hold cows sacred. Mm -hmm. And you were not supposed to kill the cows. You were supposed to protect the cows. And you just wonder, it, you know, 
when you have something coming down from the gods, it seems so random. Why? You know, why can you eat this, not eat that, you know? But when you look at people who are coming from the other side of the planet to get your cows because you have healthy cows, isn't it possible that that's why those cows were considered sacred? Were they providing cows for people around the world? Did we have mad cow disease thousands of years ago that they were battling? And is that why, you know, India was the place where they had the healthy cows for everybody else to go and get because they couldn't seem to get rid of whatever was wrong with their cows. That makes sense to me. It makes sense to me, too. That's and, logical. Yeah. And, and the cow, or, or like, I mean, sometimes I always kind of relate it to, like, the bull god stories, too. Yes. Which, is, you know, shows up at the Minoans and yes. supposedly the Atlanteans. Yes. So, you know, it, there's no disconnect. If you, you have to follow them all around the world to get the, to, to start connecting these pieces. You know, because the legend of Fusang, the China, that's a Chinese, that's a legend out of China. So you connect that with something going on today, Charles James Hall, with the ancient Ireland. So you've got three different, you know, that you can't just read one book or two or three written by a historian to get the true history of the fairies of Ireland or any other of the deities around the world, the pagan deities. You have to, you have to read everything from everybody. Hmm. I think I have uh, collected, amassed a library, at least 2,500 to 3,000 books now, wow. uh, digital, you know, mm -hmm. to, for research purposes. That, I think I, that, I know it's, a, it's, I know it's at least 2,500. It might be 3,000 by now. Yeah, you know, when I find one, I get it digitally and I add it to my library so that it's always there uh, for the future. Hmm. But it, it it just blows me away that there's no disconnect at all. I mean, we've got now this is not in fairies. The fairies of Ireland, like I said, it grew way beyond. There are two legends out of fairies of Ireland that blow me away. When they arrived in Ireland, there was a legend that they came from four sacred cities. There were four cities that they came from. They came out of the sky, but they were in four cities on earth somewhere. And from each of these cities, they brought a treasure. Well, the, even the Irish scholars, nobody knew where the cities were. Some, and most people believe that they're in one place. They were all in Scandinavia. They were all in Germany. They were all in Italy. They were all in Spain. They were all lumped together. That is the traditional belief. I dissected that one, too, and turned it into a whole book all, all on its own. <laughs> that is Nordic Aliens and the Legend of the Four Cities. And that that dissects where were those cities. Now, when you, the Irish Druids, they were teachers. They built colleges. And the colleges that they built were um, similar to, like, Oxford and Harvard. All of the big colleges around the world today, that was what they built. They built colleges that people came from long distances to go to, to learn. So these four cities, they established colleges in each one of these four cities. They wouldn't have been grouped together. They would have, since these beings were all around the world, these cities would also have been scattered. One of them, I believe, was in Alexandria, Egypt. And the book goes into all of the proof showing 
that one of the cities of Irish legend where the Irish Druids were was Alexandria, Egypt. Another, I believe, was in Italy, Etruria, Italy. And the book goes into all of the proof that shows that in all likelihood, this was one of the, you know, one of the sacred cities. And so you get into, you, you, you have to go into, you know, the history of other countries. You know, the his, you know, the history of Egypt, the history of Italy, to bring it all together to come up with, well, where were these cities? You know, and one of them was in the Holy Land. Now, you know, Mount Hermon, where the sons of God came down to the daughters of men, the biblical, mm -hmm. the holy angels, the fallen angels, that was Mount Hermon in the Holy Land. One of the holy cities of the fairies of Ireland, the Tuatha de Danann, I believe was very close to Mount Hermon. And the proof of why is in that, boy, that's a whole, you know, that is in that, that's how it came to be a whole book on its own. The fourth city, I could never quite figure out exactly. I had, there were some theories, but I ne never came up with an absolute, this is where I believe that fourth city was. But three of them, I'm pretty sure that those were the locations. Now, another thing that the Irish, now we have legends out of Ireland where they traveled in those transcontinental ships somewhere west of Ireland and vanished, you know, over the ocean. Everybody believes that the islands they went to were High Brazil and Damar, which were small islands not too far from Ireland. That is the general belief that people are coming up with where did they go when they traveled west to mysterious islands. I analyzed those legends as well, and that is in Nordic Aliens and the Lost Kingdoms of the Americas, I believe is where those are. Um, I believe they went to Buenos Aires in South America. Mm -hmm. We have three different Irish legends, and when they, just like today, they give you an itinerary. We stopped in an island, and this was the weather. We encountered these birds. We encountered these animals these plants, these trees, and they would tell you what they encountered on an island as they traveled. And they would tell you how the distance, you know, we traveled for 10 days and then we, you know, came to another island and this is what we found. We traveled 20 days, came to another island. And if you follow that and you say, okay, well, they describe birds that are only found in certain parts of the world. So where were, where are those birds located? So you start, you know, researching the birds and then they describe bird eggs and they describe sheep and they describe their and trees and by the time you're done you realize that what they did is they left ireland they hugged the coast you know southward to spain and then to northern africa and then they cut across to south america and then hugged the coast again until they got to buenos aires because they, what they described at the other end was a perfect description for what is known as the River of Silver. It's this big estuary. Um, and it looks like silver because there's mica floating on the water and in the water. So it, and so it looks very, very silvery. And of course, you have all the tropical fish and, and the weather uh, is very, very different. Obviously, you're in a different part of the world. And they described the weather that they encountered. They said if it was summer in Ireland, it was winter in this new location if it was winter in ireland it was summer in this new location 
And everything they described was a perfect description for Buenos Aires, what is now Buenos Aires in South America. And they made at least three trips that I'm aware of to this location in their, in their transcontinental ships. And when you study Greek mythology, you discover that in that same location that the Irish gods were traveling, they were encountering Greek gods in that location. Hmm. That's Hattie, because even the Irish scholars will tell you that they believe that the Irish gods and the Greek gods may have been related, because there's one goddess, uh, the main Irish goddess that the Tuatha de Danann are named for a goddess, people of the goddess Dana. The Greeks have a goddess Danai, and from the goddess Danai came the Danans of Greece, you know, her descendants. So if you study both of their histories, they even fought a war together. The before they came to Ireland, and they were in those four cities before that, they were fighting a war alongside the Greek gods who were being invaded by either Syrians or Assyrians. Uh, the, the legends vary on what they call the invaders, but they were being invaded and the Tuatha de Danann were in Greece assisting them in a war before they ever arrived in Ireland. So when you look at the Dana versus Danai, clearly they were related to one another. So you've got the Greek gods and the Celtic Irish gods, they were, they came from the same source. It's just, it's phenomenal when you, when you, when you just follow all the threads, it's just absolutely phenomenal to me. I mean, just, uh, they had the ability cloning. The fairies of Ireland cloned people. Now, here's, and I'm going to expand on this in a future book, and it's in it's in Fairies of Ireland, but it, it the next book I write is it's already in there. Uh, I'm working on a new one. We get legends today. We've got that there, there is a conspiracy theory today that somehow the government is in bed with the aliens and they made some sort of a deal to allow the aliens to abduct people. Okay, you've heard that one, I'm sure. The Eisenhower Treaty. Yeah, yeah. The fairies of Ireland would abduct people, but only after they had permission. And they had a interesting way of getting permission. They would challenge someone to a game of chess or something similar and it's like if you win you being the human you know i've got all this technology i've got all sorts of stuff that you know i can give to you but if i win i'm going to name my prize after i win i'm not going to tell you what i want before we play so you're playing against them thinking oh i'm going to get this advantage because they had advantage they had they had the equivalent of a Star Trek replica, uh, replicator where they could get any food they wanted just like on the Star Trek starship. You know, so they had this advanced technology that was just out of this world. So a human is like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to play this game, I'm going to beat them, and I'm going to get something really cool out of it. 
they didn't name their price until after the game was over and they won, at which point they would say, and this sounds awful, but this is, you know, they would say, okay, and they would always play against kings. They weren't just, you know, playing against, you know, the ordinary guy. There was always kings that they were, this was going on with. I want your wife. I won the game. You said I could have anything I wanted. I want your wife. So that, so now there's one king. He, and they said, I'm going to come back in one year and take your wife. One year. You have one year. And then one year from now, I'm going to come and take your wife. And this one king, Yohi, he's like, oh, they're not going to, this not going to happen. So on the day that the extraterrestrial was supposed to arrive, he filled his castle with people. He surrounded it with guards. He locked it up as tight as you can humanly possibly lock it up because nobody's coming into that castle to take his wife. So everybody's eating and drinking and they're having a good time. Next thing you know, there's the extraterrestrial in the room with the king and his wife full of other people. And he just come, you know, just like now, he just came through the wall, just appeared out of nowhere. And there was nothing that King Yohi could do. He became paralyzed. And just like today, when somebody goes into a house and the spouse is put to sleep, the family members are either put to sleep, usually put to sleep or paralyzed in some way that render them in a, you know, incapable of doing anything, but, you know, watching. That's what happened to the king. He was rendered incapable of crying out, moving anything. He was just paralyzed in place, but he could see what was going on. And everybody else must have been put to sleep because he was the only one that witnessed this. So the extraterrestrial just shows up in the room, floats the wife, the queen, up into the air, out through the wall, out through the roof, and away. Just like they do today. Same story. Identical to an alien abduction today. But the story doesn't end. So now the extraterrestrial has the wife and he's taken her somewhere. But one year later, the king gets her back. Somehow he's given clues as to where his wife is. So he goes and he finds his wife in one of these quote unquote fairy dwellings. One of these, they're usually underground. That's another interesting thing. They're usually underground. But by, when he arrives, there are 50 identical clones of his wife, 50. And he said, he's told, okay, pick out your wife. You got 50 identical women. They all look the same. Pick out your wife. And the only way the king was able to pick out his wife was because she made some sort of a motion and identified herself to him. Otherwise, he could not tell her from the other 50 women. And that's not the only story we have of cloning, but it's they were cloning people. And we have Stornock got it in, in there in the cloning chapter where supposedly we've cloned people. Suppo you know, there are news stories out there where we have actually cloned people. And then those news stories got buried. So, you know, this isn't out of the realm of possibility. If we're doing it now or we're, we're cloning sheep, we're cloning all, you know, dogs and cats and sheep and, and supposedly humans, we're doing that now. Clearly they could have done it then. Absolutely. So, yeah, so there, there's no disconnect in the ancient stories, and you know, the, the, everything that we hear going on now, including the bargain that was made for the abduction, we get we get that from thousands of years ago, and that just fascinates me. There's no disconnect. None. Exactly the same thing. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, yeah. When, when we were talking about the mermaids, um, yeah. it's interesting, you know, um, what about some of the other life in the sea that we know of that sometimes is associated with extraterrestrials, like octopuses and um, orcas? Do, do you think there's any connection between those and extraterrestrials? I wouldn't be surprised. I have not come across it in anything I've researched, but um, the research is a, it's a big field, mm-hmm. and you can go off in a lot of directions. Um, you know, people were describing all kinds of strange creatures under the water, even back then, deep, you know, deep under the water. And the only way they could have known about some of these creatures was. Uh, the same way that the, the, the Piri Rees map, you know, there are things that humans couldn't have known without extraterrestrial knowledge being yeah. given to us. And the Piri Rees map of uh, the world <laughs> before pre-glacial, uh, you know, it's one of those things. And, and so we had to script, you know, humans had knowledge of things that we couldn't possibly have known without extraterrestrials sharing their knowledge with us thousands of years ago um another one it's one of my favorites has to do with a second sun in our solar system now we get several ancient legends that there was a second sun that we are in a binary star system and there are two suns and one of them was intentionally dimmed or killed by extraterrestrials in order to give Earth a better chance. Now, Zechariah Sitchin, you know, writes about this planet that has a 3,600-year orbit. Nebu. And, you know, we're, yeah. And we are finding, we have astronomers today finding planets and, 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 you know, asteroids and so forth. They have an orbit that is just thousands and thousands of years that they can't explain because it would clearly not be going around our sun. And there is a theory today, not everybody embraces it, but some astronomers believe that there is a second sun in our solar system. We have ancient stories of our ancestors talking about a second sun in our solar system. How could they have known that if they, unless the extraterrestrials told them? Hmm. So that's why Earth's extraterrestrial history is so important because... We knew what these people did when they were here. But we don't know anything about the aliens flying the skies today. Unless The only way you know anything is you know, when an abductee tells you something. And most people don't really buy into that. Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, And I'm one of them. I've written about that, too. I haven't written about very many of them, but I published one book, and then I stopped. For, uh, I, I got scared off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I used morning. to I, I used to yeah. not believe, but now that I've interviewed so many people that have had that experience, I believe it now. I have no reason yeah. to not believe it. To not believe it. To not believe it. But the, the, the same story that people are telling now, you know, we're hearing bits and pieces of those same stories from thousands of years ago. And today a lot of the abductees will come back and tell you oh they're giving warnings of you know disastrous uh, earthquakes and volcanoes and, and different 
end of the world scenarios, well, we have thousands of years ago where the gods told the people, we will be back at the end of days, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what you can expect. And I don't recall what book it's in. I don't think it's in Fairies of Ireland, um, where we have actual descriptions of what's going to happen at the end of days, and it sounds like there's going to be some sort of a disaster in the solar system where all of the planets get knocked out of their orbits. The moon, the different planets, and there's the second sun maybe coming into it. And I, I don't recall what book that... Oh, oh. Nordic Aliens and the Forbidden Islands of the Gods. The latter half of that book goes into uh, creation, human creation, uh, the creation of the world, and it goes into Armageddon, Revelation, you know, the end of the world, and the different, uh, you know, kind of bringing together the different legends that we have from thousands of years ago on what to expect. Because I think that's important. Because if you look at what's going on today, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but the countdown has started. It has clearly started. In the Hindu holy books, um, Oh, God, it's, it's heartbreaking to read some of their descriptions. They call it Kali Yuga. The age of Kali is what they consider the countdown toward the end. And they describe what humanity turns into at that time. And it's in that same book. Hmm. You know, we lose 75% of our humanity where lies become, you know, taken as truth and truth is taken as lies. And there's no justice to be found anywhere. And we're watching that right now. And, you know, of course, we're in a mass extinction event of animals. And, you know, this is, you know, it's not mainstream. But if you go to, you know, Google or wherever, type in mass extinction event, sixth mass extinction event, you will discover that there's a whole lot of species right now that are on the brink of extinction right now. You know, the big cats are one of them. Um, in my lifetime, there's a high probability that tigers will be extinct in the wild in my lifetime. And, you know, I'm in my 60s. So, it, you know, the countdown has begun. So we really need to know how to, what to expect when, and I believe that they will, you know, they've all, you know, they're supposed to come back. I believe that they will. And they, I believe that they are the life boats off of a dying planet. So, so this is almost like another the, Noah's Ark situation. Yes, very similar. Very similar. And they, if you study the ancient legends, including the Bible and the books of Enoch, Enoch really, really expands on the Bible exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it's in some Bibles, but it not is, all yeah, Bibles. Like the Ethiopian yeah. Bible, I believe. It's the here. Ethiopian, yes, yes. So there's a... Book of Enoch and the Book of the Secrets of Enoch. And so a lot of what we know uh, about the giants, the fallen angels, the, you know, the, the sons of God with the daughters of men, a lot of that comes out of the Book of Enoch. They, that gave us, the books of Enoch gave us the best descriptions of, and they were giants that came down out of the sky. So, um, countless soldiers of human appearance. That was the wording in one of the Enoch books. Countless soldiers of human appearance. So it's just that there's no disconnect in all around the world. And there's no disconnect between 
biblical creation and evolution. I showed that in um, Nordic Aliens and the Forbidden Islands of the Gods goes into creation and it shows that there's no disconnect between the Bible and the evolutionary. You don't have to discount one to believe in the other. It's connected. Mm. And it's and it's beautiful and it's it's just beautiful. When you when it all comes together, it's just beautiful. And and it's yeah. I believe that the more we know about what they did yesterday, the better prepared we will be when they arrive. Whenever that may be. I hope we can avoid it the end of the world. I like this world. Well, that's now that's the odd thing. They, you know, according to you know, there will be a new heaven, new earth, humans in the new bodies. Well, the new earth, it's a little fuzzy on whether it's our earth remade over, kind of like the the Noah scenario. Something happened on Earth, and then they had to uh, terraform it to make it habitable again. Or if the Earth is going to be in another solar system, a different Earth. That you can read it both ways. Right. You can. An- another you can idea add- is that I wonder too. Is um you know I was having a conversation you know, with one of my friends about Atlantis about like what could have happened to it, and one of the theories that I kind of lean towards is that the their consciousness got raised so to such a high vibration that they just vanished into another dimension. And maybe like like that's something that could possibly happen too. Is we could maybe some of us could raise our vibration high enough to actually go to like an astral version of the Earth. That's possible. That is very very possible. I mean, a lot of our ancient legends uh, suggest that somehow or another, with the assistance of extraterrestrials, we were able to travel through some sort of a por- portal. You'd be walking along. And you'd, you know, go through some sort of a doorway and you'd be on Earth, but it would be different. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas you started out on a mountain with trees. Next thing you know, you walk through some sort of a doorway and what you're seeing is cornfields and a river. Whereas just one minute ago, you were on a mountain with trees and there are several, you know, we've got several, uh, several of these legends and they come from different, you know, not just one source. We're getting them from... You know, Native Americans, we're getting from the fairies of Ireland, we're getting them from different places, the same story. And that's just phenomenal. Uh, usually, now in those cases, in some way, they assisted the person in doing it. Um, you know, in, in, you couldn't just, people weren't just walking into them. Somehow we had their assistance to do it. To, and they could bring us back through the portal, back to Earth. And we've got several of these, and it's just, it's, it's beautiful. Now, I think that they were using portals like this to move people around the planet. You have vanished civilizations. Nobody knows what happened to them. But you also have legends of extraterrestrials moving humans from one place to another. Mm-hmm. We have in um, Cherokee legends, there was a Cherokee village that the extraterrestrials there, they were called the Nunahi. And they took the Cherokee villagers into a cave. And when they went in the cave, what they saw wasn't a cave. They, it was as if they had walked into another world. It was wide open 
outdoor bottomlands with villages and houses and the sky and the stars as if they'd gone through a portal. And nobody knows where they went. They were rescued. They were saved. They were relocated somewhere. Then we have stories out of uh, the Inca legends where there's a, um, a hill with three windows. I'm sure you've heard of the three windows. And gods came out of the windows. And some tribes that nobody knows who they were came out of these windows. And so is it possible that they took something like, like the Cherokee village, put it, you know, they went through a portal and came out in, in the Inca territory because they were in danger where they were. Is it, is it possible? It's possible because we don't know who the people were that came out of the windows in South America. So, you know, in North America, we have them going into some sort of a window and in South America, we have them coming out again. Interesting. So it is possible. Yeah. Um, and that sort of segues into your, one of your books about um, extraterrestrials and dreams, too. Yes, yes. That's the one I just published because it was sort of a personal endeavor because a lot of my, some of my memories are actual memories, but some of them were in the form of dreams. You wake up, you're in your bed, you think you had a dream. And I was, it started for me in the earliest childhood. I mean, toddler, at least as far back. I was waking up terrified and I was encountering what I now know were the alien greys. And this was, now I'm in my 60s, so this is, we didn't have internet, we didn't have, you know, cable TV, we didn't have anything. You know, the gray aliens weren't worldwide knowledge at the time that I was having nightmares about them as a child. But I was thought they were dreams. You know, I was dreaming of some sort of a monster. I would wake up terrified. And that's kind of why I took an interest in this whole dream topic. And then in my research for the, you know, other extraterrestrial ancient aliens, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Bible. And I started noticing a pattern. Well, you know, Jesus, you know, his, his father and his mother, you know, they had experiences that God was talking to them in dreams. He was communicating with them in dreams. And all through the Bible, you've got God communicating with all sorts of different people in dreams. And it's like, wait a minute. And then I discovered that uh, the Greek gods were also doing the same thing. They were communicating with people in dreams, specifically in dreams. So I put all of this together in the last book I published, which was uh, just last year. Um, extraterrestrial encounters and visions in a dream. And that's for all of the people out there that aren't sure if it was a memory or a dream. It's showing that there are indicators. You can kind of tell that if you wake up and you're terrified, you're scared. I mean, you're just absolutely frozen in place, terrified. It's usually a memory and not a dream. You know, there's, there's just differences in, you know, in the two, but it's just, it's just phenomenal to me. It is interesting. You know, I, I mentioned earlier before the show, too, that I interviewed a guest who had a dream about great aliens, and then when he awoke, they were actually there in his room. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and yeah, exactly. And I've heard that they, actually, not just him, but I've heard it from other people who've other had people. experiences, too. Yeah, you think you're having a dream and you wake up and then, and then you're awake and you know you're awake. And, and that's happened to me too. Um, 
you know you're awake and there's something in the room with you and you can see there's something in the room with you and it's like I started keeping track of you know as a child you know you, you don't when it starts that early in your life you don't have a frame of you don't realize that it's even different than everybody else's life it's your normal when it starts that young you have no concept that this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's your normal. Oh, it's this again. And, you know, nowadays, you know, somebody has it and it's like, they're going to tell somebody, you know, they're going to say, hey, this is going on. But when you're a child, if you try to tell somebody, oh, 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 go back to bed. You're just dreaming. You know, you're fine. You know, and nobody's going to believe anything you say. But I took my experiences. I have, I've had three groupings. I would call them, and all three of them coincided with uh, worldwide or UFO waves. I did a lot of research on that. And so when I was having encounters, so were a lot of other people having encounters and reporting UFOs and crop circles and abductions and all sorts of things. And it's the, the proof is out there and the truth is out there. And I really, really hope that people immerse themselves, not just in one person. That You know, there are so many of us out there trying to bring the truth in different pieces of the truth. And everybody has their own focus on, you know, uh, of what they're studying hmm. and what they're bringing to people. And, and we're all telling the same story from a, from a different angle and from a different research perspective. But we're all telling the same story and we're all trying to bring the same truth. And the odd thing about ancient astronaut theory is the word theory. You know, the same way you, you hear about the slavery, I came up and, and studied it and came up with a different interpretation. So that's why it's called ancient astronaut theory. Because different people will have different interpretations of what they are. And we're all drawing from the same sources. Yeah. You know, they're not, nobody's writing ancient history still. You know, it's already been written. You know, the, the books are it's there. interpretation, the yeah. Yeah, all of that's already been written. So we all just have our own system of where we're going to go and, and look for information. And we all have our different, you know, we all, everybody goes into it and interprets it differently. Mm -hmm. And it, that's why it's called theory. Because it's just, well, this is my interpretation. And this is your interpretation, you know, and that's why it's called theory. Hmm. And just, you know, the dream dream thing also with me has like a sort of a personal thing too, because I've had, you know, since I've been doing the podcast, obviously I'm a little bit obsessed with dreams and aliens and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things I was trying to do was, um, do a lucid dreaming thing where I was going to astral project, you know, so I'd use this sleep incubation technique. And I did it. I was doing it and doing it and doing it. And one night I had a dream that I was flying, which was a good sign of astral projection and lucid dreaming. Yes. And I was flying with a gray alien. Oh, wow. And it took me somewhere, I don't know, for some reason the word, like I, th I thought it was Pittsburgh. <laughs> and we land in Pittsburgh, and there's these little tiny houses, and he tells me to look in the window, and I look in the window, and there's like all these little families of gray aliens. Oh, wow. And I was just like, whoa. And it's a dream. Like, I've never forgot the dream. I don't remember how the dream ended, but. Yeah. Um, 
And he told me not to interact. I remember that too. He said, don't interact. You know, you can watch, but you can't interact. Don't disturb him. Can't them. interact. And, um, and then I, I guess I woke up or had another dream or something, but I never forgot it because, you know, I was, you know, doing this practice on purpose to have some type of experience. And then I had that, that dream, which had some signs of, um, astral projection and yeah. alien contact and, um, I do believe, and I wrote that in the book too, that some dreams represent traveling to whether it's another planet or another part of our world or another time and history in our world, where you actually you actually see something. You're watching. You're a watcher. You're not mm-hmm. experiencing, but you're actually seeing something. And I have, and I, I know others. Uh, have spoken about this as well, where they believe that they've actually either been taken to or been shown another planet, you know, another place, another time. And I absolutely believe that's possible. Hmm. I believe that 150% that that is possible. Awesome. And, uh, I and, think and, that they, yeah. And another dream that I had too, that, that, that has always stuck with me, was that I was my I was living in some kind of village and the sky was gray all the time, so it was like no day or night, and you lived in people lived in these little sheds or little humble houses, and the job you, like your job there is to sleep and have dreams. Oh wow! That, that's the only thing that you're supposed to do. Like like you know you get up you eat you go do things like that, yeah. but then you have to go to sleep and you dream. That, that, that's what your job there is to do, is to be some kind of dreamer. Oh, that, any, yes, that could be. I mean, we have, think about, you, know, you have the conspiracy, and, and I have very strong reason to believe that this is very, very true. Uh, the conspiracy theory about the military uh, teaching people to do remote viewing. And so that's their job. Their job is to sit there and try to see something going on in another, another part of the world. Mm-hmm. And... I actually knew someone who claimed to have been um, doing that. Yeah. And I have no reason to disbelieve that person. So it's a similar concept. It's a very similar concept. And I've done that too. I've uh, interviewed, his name was David Morehouse, and he wrote the remote viewing handbook for the CIA. Oh, wow. And, um, And I took one of his classes on remote viewing. And I was completely blown away, yeah, by how well it works. It's and incredible. It, and it does work. Yeah, it absolutely. Does work. If you can get into the right mental space, it absolutely does work. Hmm. So it's it's so yeah. You know, you're the the dreams are possible. I mean, we are. Our world is so small, and what we believe is possible. But we have been taught from childhood, you know, our ancestors were taught that all of these things were possible. It's only in more modern history that we're taught that, oh, if you can't see it, if you can't touch it, it isn't real. You know, psychic this, you know, remote view, all of these things, dream, you know, none of this is real. It's not reality. And that's what we're taught from childhood. But even just going back to the Native Americans, you know, they believed. They raised their children to embrace, and so did several other cultures, you know, raise their children to embrace the 
psychic world, the mental world, the dream world, the, you know, the other world by whatever terminology. So it's just us. You know, we we had it. Someone took that away from us for whatever reason. They yes, stopped teaching it. I agree. It. Yeah. It was done on purpose because um, I think now we're probably operating at like maybe 10% of what our actual ability is. Yes. Yes. There's a book. Yeah, it was probably 30, 40 years old. Maxwell Maltz. Psycho, psycho cybernetics and he mm-hmm. in this he calls you know he and you've heard of the great the, the basketball experiment where they took three groups of people and they had each one of them practice basketball free free throws and you know mark their scores each group was sent home you go home and you practice basketball you just practice it for whatever period of time then the second group you go home you do not even think about that. You don't touch it. You don't think about it. You don't do anything. The third group, they were told to go home and meditate, to imagine <laughs> basketball in their minds, but not to touch a basketball, to just envision that they were um, playing basketball, you know, doing the free throws. And at the end of the period of time, all three groups go back in and get retested. Well, the group that was told not to even think about it, their scores didn't change. But the group that practiced physically and the group that practiced mentally their scores were nearly, their increase, their improvement was nearly identical. That just really, really that's phenomenal. It that is. shows you the power of the mind that if you focus on something in the positively, and I absolutely believe, and it's really hard to, <laughs> we tend to the negative. <laughs> we, we do, we just grasp it. And you give power to whatever you, you know, if you're focused on the negative, all of it, you're giving it power. And it's going to increase in your life. But if you focus on the positive, like the basketball thing, and you, you know, practice focusing on the positive, you will bring more. You will attract the law of attraction. You will attract more of it. Mm. So, yeah, exactly. Incredible. Wow. Well, this was a great interview. Thank you so much for coming on. We have to do this again because there's so much more to cover. Absolutely. This is just amazing. And you really helped me with that. Throwing in that gap, <laughs> yeah. I I never well, knew that 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 could be filled for me. Well, I'm maybe maybe I'll fill some more next time around. Yeah, because, so because I have I have immersed. <laughs> it's my mission. It is my mission. Mine too, in some ways. Um. So before we wrap it up. Where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Amazon. All of my books are on Kindle. Mm-hmm. They they are also in paperback. One of them is in hardcover. It was an experimental. Let's let's see how that goes. The Fairies of Ireland is also in hardcover, but they are also um, in audiobook form. So you can get them on Audible. You can get them, uh, I believe, mm-hmm. on iTunes and on Amazon. Now, some of them are in the process of being narrated. I've got three narrators working on three books right now, but um, a good portion of the extraterrestrial books have already been narrated, so they are also in auto audiobook. But Amazon and Audible and iTunes and so forth are the best places to find me. Awesome. And I also yeah. have websites. Yeah, I see that some of them are on Kindle Unlimited, too, so I can just get them on there. Well, there, yes, some of them. Cool. I've, I've done it a variety of ways. 
Yeah, you have it all covered. <laughs> I tried. Kindle Unlimited, is that what you're talking about? Yep. Yeah, I have some of them are in Kindle Unlimited. Yeah. Some of them are in Kindle Unlimited. Say that three times real fast. <laughs> I can't but, even say uh, it once. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Great. Well, I will put a link to your books and to your page on Amazon so my listeners can check them out and buy them and read Thank them. Thank you. We'll do this Thank again. You. And we absolutely will. Fantastic. And it has been my absolute pleasure. Mine too. Uh-oh, my dog's starting to bark. He's hungry. Ooh. I guess that means it's time for me to play my outro. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Book 